Before we begin, we want to make the listener aware that this story contains adult content related to suicidal ideation. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. You can place a free and confidential call to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We've linked the number in our bio. You are worthy of fighting for, and you are loved. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and not those of this podcast. This content is presented for informational and educational purposes that constitute fair use, commentary, or criticism. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, we welcome any comment, suggestion, or correction of errors. For the next two weeks, we will be featuring two episodes from storyteller Michelle. In part one, Michelle will be sharing about her time at a large Christian organization. She worked at this organization for eight years, and despite her hard work and passion for the community she served, Michelle's voice as a single woman was eventually diminished. In part two, Michelle will talk about how she not only found her voice again, but a career where she can help bring restoration and healing to others. So be sure to tune in next week to hear part two. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Marsville bus. (laughs) And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. Welcome everybody back to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. And we are honored today to have Michelle with us. This will be part one of a two-part series with Michelle, and today we're going to talk about her story, uh, share her story, and talk about her time in ministry with an international organization with her focus on campus ministry. And then part two, we're going to talk about what she's doing today professionally. So I highly suggest everyone take the time to listen to these two episodes. John and I are really excited to share this story with you. So Michelle, welcome to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you all for having me. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to share my story um, and to also be able to share kind of how that's played into what I'm doing now. So I want to I want to start off with uh, a little bit about you know, you really pursued or decided to pursue ministry in your early 20s. I'd love to know a little bit about what was the heart behind deciding to go that way. Sure. I first felt what I would say was a calling to ministry when I was in college. Just my framework for ministry at that time, I hadn't really seen very many women in ministry. I'd seen lots of women as pastor's wives, youth pastor's wives. And so I felt like that's what I was going to be was a pastor's wife. About a year after I graduated from college, this pastor that I'm 
you know, supposed to marry hasn't come along yet. Um, and I was at a conference and one of the speakers said, if you could do anything for God and you didn't have to think about the consequences, the financial responsibility, um, anything like that, what would you be doing? And it just kind of popped into my head of college ministry. Like I would be working with young adults. Um, so that's how the pursuit began started looking into various ministries that I knew about that were on campuses that worked with college students um, and ended up joining staff with, as you said, it's an international ministry, but I was working with the campus ministry branch. So um, I only worked with college students and joined staff um, actually on my 25th birthday was my first day of officially being on staff. So you joined this organization, and before you joined this organization, you started taking seminary classes, correct? I had done, my undergraduate studies were in religious studies, not exactly seminary. The seminary classes started when I joined with the organization. Mm -hmm. All right. So after you joined, you know, you have this idea that you're supposed to be a pastor's wife, but that didn't happen. And now you're you're saying, all right, I'm going to jump into this new ministry here. What were some of the things being taught in these seminary classes and how did they really impact, you know, your view of yourself in a ministry role? Yeah, I am very much a person that loves to learn. And so I was like completely in on these classes. Like that was exciting to me. That was really the first time that I was introduced to Calvinist theology and really talking through the ideas of like total depravity and those kinds of things. I can't speak for the entire international ministry. I can speak for my portion of the country, which I'm in North Carolina, and I did my my service in North Carolina. Very much patriarchal. All of the leaders are men. Very submissive view of women. Not really too many roles for women, but I didn't completely understand that at the time. It was very much packaged as, you know, we are, we're protecting our women and you have a higher calling as a wife and a mother and, you know, things that can be true, but can also be really manipulated to be very hurtful. What would you say, like when you first started, the culture was that you were walking into? Yeah. So my first introduction, um, you go through a training with all of the other folks that are joining um, staff at that particular time. And so it's folks from all over the country. It was the first time that I really felt like I was in kind of a Christian competition of like, who knows the most worship songs or who can quote the most verses or who understands this particular theology the best. But at the time, like, that didn't really bother me. It was, like, kind of a challenge, you know, oh, we're all learning these things together. And there's also, with this particular organization, and I think with a lot of missionary ministry-type organizations, you raise your own support. So that was a big focus as well, is looking at all of the scripture verses that can back that up and learning how to ask for that financial support. So those were kind of the first two big things that I noticed. So did you have to raise your support as well? I did. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was on staff for almost nine years, um, and I had to raise my support that whole time, people partnering with me, individuals, churches. As you came on to staff, did you notice a dynamic with like you being a female versus other 
like people that were men that were joining staff. Did you notice a dynamic there like pretty quickly off right off the bat? Or is that something that kind of like you started realizing over time? Um, I noticed it a little bit right off the bat, but it was things that were, I kind of joke about the quote unquote helpful part of patriarchy of like, oh, here's a woman, you need to carry her suitcase, you know, that kind of thing. You know, if we're having to move furniture, of course the guys are going to move the furniture because, you know, I can't move a chair or whatever the case may be. So I noticed those things. Um, I noticed that there was some separation between like, like if we had recreational time, what guys would be doing and what girls would be doing and just kind of how that played out. I noticed this happened more over time, but I noticed using the the term girls you know like the we're grown women but it's guys and girls or men and girls and just kind of how that language matters how you're perceived it all got more intense and more obvious over time of the differences in how men and women are treated that's really interesting the girls thing i haven't even thought about that Jonna, do you remember any time like in a ministry context where you were referred to as a girl I don't remember a specific time, but that's so common Mm. to say like the guys and girls in this like patronizing view of women and making them like underneath. So it's like there's men and then there's girls Mm. and the girls need to be taught or protected. Mm -hmm. It's like it's very bizarre, but it does happen in a lot of contexts. Yeah, it does. I like what you said, Michelle, about we have to save the women like that was part of the thing like what what were they saving you from moving furniture or is it other things as well you know i guess the the physical uh, movement of having to move furniture or like i mean things they would talk about you know is like we're protecting you from advances from other men um or you know like keeping you safe making sure that you're not harmed. And it's hard because there's on one hand, just the reality of a woman walking alone at night is more likely to experience violence than a man. And so there's some reality there, but then it also can be taken really far to almost like you, you are a little child and I must protect you and make your decisions for you because you're not capable. It's like, uh, something that should be good that ends up getting twisted a lot of times in religious contexts, especially or high patriarchy mm-hmm. places that view men as like the top. I feel like there are good things like we do need allies and men to to notice like disparities and to come alongside us and use their privilege or their ability to like have safety in order to help like protect us when we're vulnerable but also that doesn't mean that we're like less than because of that i think that that's mm-hmm. where it gets twisted and we see it really often you see it in progressive circles too it's not just in these like hyper conservative spaces i see women used as props mm-hmm. often yeah so i want to continue into your story what was your role when you came on staff and how did that flesh out within the staff context? Yeah. Um, So when I first came on staff, um, I was joining a really small team. It had basically only been two men 
um, that were on this team. And it just so happened that me and another woman joined at the same time. Um, you spend some time working on your support before you report to your your ministry context. So before I was involved with any work with students, was focusing on raising support. Um, me and this other woman reported at the same time. Um, and when you're new staff, you have a lot of um, stuff to go through, just kind of Bible study um, and learning the ropes of the ministry. Um, you know, particular terms, ways of doing things, structures, and then also like biblical studies. Um, and so we were doing a lot of that. And also um, in our context, we worked on multiple campuses. We weren't just on one specific campus. Um, so spending time visiting the campuses and getting a feel for um, what made them different or unique. One of the campuses, actually the largest campus that was within um, our scope um, as far as population, was actually 75% female. Um, and so up to the point that she and I came, um, you know, there hadn't been any female staff. Um, and so we um, were involved in getting a women's ministry started um, there. Um you know, just by being available. There were some um, women who were involved in kind of the larger group meetings and things that they had just started coming, but they didn't have like a staff person to lead Bible studies um, or to kind of go to with, you know, maybe those more private concerns that they wouldn't want to talk to one of the men on staff. Um, and then it also, I mean, it doubled the staff team so we can do more things on different campuses when you have four people versus two people. And those were, those were good times, right? You enjoyed building that women's ministry out. It was a fruitful time for you. Yeah. Yeah. Those first few years is really good. Um, me and the other woman that joined staff, we had very complimentary personalities and strengths. Um, and so it worked really well. Like if we would plan events or, you know, be thinking about ways to do ministry. We just complimented each other really well. Um, and then in probably the third or fourth year, um, we got some other folks on our staff team. And so there was a period there where um, there were five single folks on our staff team. We hung out a lot, um, you know, did ministry things together, but also would just hang out um, with each other um, and kind of each other's friend group. And so that was a really a good time, both ministry-wise, personal-wise, like things were going well. What year was that? Do you remember? Um, so that was probably about between 2007 and 2010 that things were pretty okay. good. Um, some shifts started happening, you know, end of 08, 09, but. Overall, things were pretty good. We could talk about those shifts in a minute, but did you notice anything else that was, in hindsight, you look back and go, yeah, that was a red flag before that big shift in 08 and 09? Yeah, I, I did. Like when I started looking back and thinking about, huh, like we had this, these large group meetings, we never had female speakers, always male speakers, even when you're at a school that's 75% female. Then thinking about, as far as leadership, when I first came on staff, 
I didn't think about this at all when it was happening because as I said, me and another woman, we came on staff together and in my head, it just made sense that, oh, you're meeting with both of us together because we're kind of in the same place figuring stuff out. Later, uh, I realized, oh, you, this particular leader, you never have one-on-one conversations with us. And then realizing, oh, like most of the teams and the way that this ministry is set up it's stated that a team has a male leader and a female leader and that they're co-leaders. Our team never had that. We always just had a male leader. And so starting to realize some of those things of like, huh, these things were at play and I didn't really recognize them. In a lot of contexts right now, this like idea of like co-leading is making a splash, I think, in like Christian contexts. And I'm not really seeing like it actually flesh out to be co-leading, even in these egalitarian spaces where they're saying there's like co-pastors happening. It's still the dudes. Like I'm not actually seeing equitable sharing and leading happening. So that one is popular to say like you have a husband and wife team doing pastoral work. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes that was the case. Um, And just kind of to speak to what Jonna said, like I had a friend that was on a different team and she was named as the Mm co-leader. She told me years later when she moved to another part of the country, uh, she was like, I wasn't a co-leader. Like I was a glorified secretary. Um, And then she saw when she had moved to another part of the country, like, oh, this is what it looks like when we have a meeting and we discuss leadership together as though we both have opinions and talents and gifts to bring, not, okay, I've made the decisions and here's your task. Yeah. And I think that's even more insidious, to be honest, for women, because you come in thinking like this is safe and I'm like valued and seen as like an equal contributor. (laughs) And then truly behind the scenes, it's still very complementarian Mm -hmm. and patriarchal. And that bums me out a lot because you coming in and you're thinking, I'm going to be contributing here and I'm going to be valued and seen as like fully human and fully capable. But then truly you're getting committed and digging down roots in places that still don't see you as Mm -hmm. like full. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that in like 08, 09, you had a little bit of a shift. And I think that when I heard your story before, you mentioned it was like a leadership change. Can you kind of walk us through that and then how that um, affected the rest of your time on staff? Sure. So the leader who was in charge of the team when I first came on, um, he started considering transitioning to like a full-time pastorship. And we knew he was making those considerations. Um, He talked to us a little bit about what having a new leader of the team might look like. Eventually, it got to the point where, okay, we're all of the members of the staff team. We're filling out some forms about, you know, what what type of leadership might work well for our staff team. Um, And then particularly one of the staff members, this person's on equal footing with all of us, just a staff member, was kind of lifted up as the, this is probably going to be your new leader. And all of us on the staff team were given feedback forms, you know, to kind of say, like, what are the strengths that we see in this person? What are the weaknesses? How do we feel about them being moved into a leadership position with the team? And all of us in some form or another basically gave the feedback of, 
this person's great as a team member. It's not going to be a good situation if they're put into a leadership position. And I'll just speak for myself here. My thoughts there were partially their leadership style, I didn't think was a good fit. But also, I think it takes a really special person to be able to go from being part of the team to leading the team. Go down the road, um, the basically the, the ministry version of human resources. It seemed like they didn't really take our feedback into consideration. And so this uh, man who had been part of our team became our team leader. The transition was kind of um, over a period of time of the original team leader transitioning out to a full pastorship, new team leader coming in. But it was around 08, 09 um, when that transition really happened. Did he have like different experience levels than the rest of you or like what set him apart as being the person who was going to get a higher staff role than you or someone else? Honestly, he was a man um, and he was the oldest man on our team. But I mean, not by much. He's maybe a year and a half older than me. So it's not like he was 10 or 15 years older than anyone else on the team. I think he was considered because he was the older man on the team. And had he been on staff longer than you guys? Not really. He So he joined staff uh, about six months before I did. The way, like I said, we have some time to raise support. His raising of support took a little bit longer um, because he had a family. So needed to raise a little bit more. So his actual report to our team in our area was after I came, but he did technically join staff about six months before I did. But I mean, that all kind of comes out in the wash, I think. Who was the person, I guess, hiring him? What was, was it a region or something like that? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not sure if this is still how this ministry works because it's been, you know, about 10 years ago, but we were divided into regions. And so each region had like what's called a regional Mm. office. And basically, if you put it into like corporate terms, that would be like our human resources, the hiring folks. And so they're the folks that he was brought on staff. Then the regional team are the ones that, you know, approved this movement um, up into a leadership position. It sounds so Michael Scottish of the regional people being like, all right, on a piece of paper, write your strengths and weaknesses about this person and then completely ignoring what's on the paper and just hiring the person anyways. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to ignore that. Yeah, we're just yeah. going to hire him. Doesn't really matter. Yeah. It, it very much felt like we've already made a decision, but you know, we got to jump through some hoops. So it looks like, you know, we got some data, um, but our decision's already made. It also has to be a little bit like demoralizing to you, right? Yeah. And especially as things really started to disintegrate, there were so many times where I was like, oh, we told y'all this wasn't a good idea. I could never have imagined the extent to which things would would disintegrate, especially when things first started kind of changing. I was like, we told you this was not a good idea. Like this is not going to be a good dynamic. Yeah. And it's sad because like you started with this excitement, you built this women's ministry out. You guys have a good dynamic. You think you have a good team dynamic. And then now this organization you're working for, they ask for your input. They completely bypass that input and hire this person. 
So like, right as he starts, like, what are you thinking professionally? Like, are you questioning your decision to go to this organization? Like, where's your head at? I wasn't questioning yet. There was just kind of that early, like, frustration of like, okay, well, you didn't listen. Um, But I still was very much in a place where I was like, okay, maybe God's going to do something with this. Maybe we were all wrong. Let's see what's happened. And around this same time period, like I had mentioned that our staff team had five single folks on it. Around that same time period, either because people moved or they got married or whatever the case may be, I'm now the only single person on our staff team. And it got to a point where I was really the only woman who was actively involved on campus because the other couples had small children. And so, you know, the moms were very involved in taking care of children and um, some of them were homeschooling and different things like that. So that was a dynamic that changed as well, all within this mix. How did that staff dynamic shift going from five singles now to you being the only single and you got married couples that have, I mean, I'm not saying they have patriarchal roles in place, but they did have roles in the sense that women were taking care of the kids. They weren't actively doing the campus ministry. Like what was that shift like for you and what was the staff dynamic? How did that, I guess, what was, how did that recalibrate once all that happened? It was really hard for me. Um, you know, at this point, I'm, you know, approaching 30 in conservative Christianity. Like, that's an old maid, you know, like you're approaching 30 and there's you're not married and there's nobody on the horizon. So I was dealing with some of that. Then it kind of felt like that there there was this chasm between me and the other staff women, whereas we used to talk about lots of things. It felt like Every conversation was now about babies or pregnancy or different decisions as far as raising children, and that, that there was no, no room for talking about anything else. Um, so that was really hard. A lot of our staff meetings would end up being me and the men on staff, depending on where we were meeting or or like what time of day it was. Some of the women may be able to attend part of it. Um, but a lot of things were me and the and the men. And so that changed the dynamic a lot. And it changed my personal dynamic because working with college students, I had a very different schedule than a lot of my friends that were working, you know, corporate jobs or teachers or I'd had these built-in friends when everybody was single. When everyone has young kids that need to get to bed and they need to keep more of a schedule and, you know, just their life circumstances have changed okay, well, now my personal life has changed a lot too because those built-in friends that have the same kind of work schedule are no longer available. Did these meetings, I remember somewhere in your story, you talk about these meetings, how they, did they take place in homes, people's personal homes? So when you're meeting with these group of men, are you meeting in their homes? What did that look like? Typically our staff meetings would be at somebody's home once this second leader um, took over the leader that that we'll be talking about more. Pretty much they were always at his home. Every once in a while, they might be, you know, somewhere like a Panera or something like that that had a back room where we could kind of meet. But a lot of times they were at his home. And I want to stop there because I actually think that's really important because when you enter someone's home, there's a feel to everyone's home that you enter. And when you're coming over for social gatherings and for 
just hanging out. There's a typical feel that that has. But when you're entering a home of like a boss or someone you work with, and there's any type of like tension or trepidation about stepping into that type of place, that's a, that is very hard. <laughs> like it's hard and it also is confusing. So for you, especially being a woman and you're kind of picking up on these patriarchal vibes, like how did that feel like walking into this man's home for meetings? Honestly, it's hard for me to remember at first um, because things did disintegrate so badly and there were so many meetings apart from the staff meetings. I know definitely over time, like I would intentionally, I'm a very punctual person, but I would get there and I would kind of hang out in the car because if I would come inside, I just ended up hanging out with his nine-year-old daughter. That's fine, but I'm here for a staff meeting, not to, not to like babysit. And so, and that would just feel really weird of like, okay, I'm here, but like the adults in the house, I'm not sure what they're doing, but they're not talking to me. So, and I'm just waiting for other people to show up. It's hard to separate all of that. Like how did it feel at the beginning versus how it began to feel? It, it's this weird like combination of your personal life and your ministry life and your faith and your work is like all tied together in this ball, which can be really unhealthy. So you're like just living in what you just explained for a little while. Like that's just the dynamic. But around 2010, there was like a big change in your story. What happened in 2010 and uh, how did that affect you? I, I mean, I knew that things weren't great. Um, we were having a lot of the issues with the new leadership that we had thought that we would have. And when you say we, do you mean like everyone on staff? Yeah, yeah. Um, our staff team, I mean, basically at that point, there was me and three men and then this leader who were regularly at staff meetings on campus. You know, their wives were still on on staff and they're still involved in the ways they can. But as far as like the core folks that are really on campus regularly and meeting together regularly, I think that all of us had some frustration. I don't want to speak for other folks, but yeah. I, I feel like we all had some frustration. Can you give an example of like something that would have caused like frustration or tension within the staff? Sure. Um, I'll just give an example of, of something that caused some frustration for me. We had that one school that was um, like 75% female. And so I was aware of some female speakers who were very like, you know, biblically solid, believe the things that our speakers are coming and talking to our students about. You know, I brought it up, like advocated for, hey, why don't we bring in one or two female speakers, uh, you know, a semester? Like the school is very heavily female. The ministry here is very heavily female. You know, it can be helpful to hear from a female that is older and like in different places in life. Some of them were older single women. And there was so much talk of like, you're preparing for marriage and children and no acknowledgement of that may not be your path. And so there was a lot of pushback on the staff team of like, we don't need to bring in women. Or when I was a 
college dude. I wouldn't have listened to some woman talking. So that was one thing that was frustrating. And was that coming from like the entire staff? It was coming from a few, but I think the environment that the leader had created allowed for it to be vocalized and not questioned. Because this particular leader had, even from the beginning, had a lot of rules around women, like not being able to talk to a woman um, one-on-one. You know, so we might be in the student center on campus where there's two, 300 people around us. But if there's not another person involved in our conversation, not being able to have an actual conversation, you know, not talking really with me because I was the female on staff, not talking with me on the phone unless it was on speakerphone and his wife was there. A lot of things that that made me feel like I was doing something wrong by just existing. And that created an environment where other folks on the staff team did that as well. This is moving ahead a little bit, but we had one time that we had been meeting and then we went for lunch. We uh, went to Chipotle and it had those seats where it's like two person booths that are like technically separate, but they're like four inches from each other. And we came to, you know, got our food. We sat down. I sat down at one and one of the men on our staff team came and like the last empty chair was the one with me. And he was like, I can't sit here. My wife and I have agreed that I won't have lunch with another woman. Okay, but our whole staff team is right here. And like, I can laugh at the absurdity of it now. But in that moment, I'm like, like, I was just trying to hold back tears. It's so degrading. It is. And I I just felt like I had done something wrong. And objectifying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, am I a threat to your marriage just by the fact that I exist? Right. You know, when you were even talking just now, I was thinking, these dudes, they like are putting you on speakerphone so their wife can hear. Imagine if you were like, I also don't feel safe talking to you. So I'm going to put you on speakerphone with a witness so that we all have witnesses here. That would never fly. Mm. They would literally lose their minds. Right. And again, this goes back to this using women to serve their purposes. Like now they have this rubber stamp of their wife on any of the conversations that you had, but you have no witness for yourself to protect you in this conversation. It's also weird. Like I think about like modeling behaviors. Like if I'm in a college campus and I'm talking to a female college student and like for some odd reason, I have a person beside me, a man, and then that man leaves. And then I have to be like, I have to stop this conversation so I can get a third party. That like being modeled to younger people, well, one is super harmful, but also like it's got to be such a turnoff for people that are even remotely curious about Christianity. They have to think like, what in the world is this? (laughs) Like, this is so bizarre. Yeah. Like, who are you? And I'll tell you, like, for me as a woman, that makes me feel scared of the man I'm talking to. Immediately, Mm -hmm. I'm like, why can't you be trusted? Like, what about you is not trustworthy? Like, why does your wife feel this way? I, I immediately feel probably the right word is fear. Like, what is happening here? And what am what are you making me a party to? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like that speaks to kind of what started happening on the staff team. So 
I got a text one day that was like, we need to have a talk. And there's no context for what this talk is about. He was like, you know, are you available? I think this was on a Wednesday. And he was like, are you available on Friday? Well, then I'm just kind of sitting in my anxiety for two days. I was like, you know, hey, I'm on campus right now. Like, could I come over and we can just go ahead and talk about whatever we need to talk about? I go over to his house. This is probably 9.30, 10 at night. Which is common, right? Right. I was going to say that sounds really late if you don't work with college students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, you know, if you're like a teacher or something, like you're probably thinking what well, you're having a meeting that late at night. And I go over there and um, he brings up how he feels like I'm withdrawing from the staff team. Now, keep in mind, this whole shift had happened of, you know, there was all these single people. It was my friends to, okay, I need to get my social needs met somewhere else. He also, I had started doing some counseling and not Christian counseling. It was, she happened to be a Christian, but she was a licensed mental health counselor. I'm just kind of working on some stuff and really, honestly, I think getting in a a healthier place than I had been. And I don't think that he really believed in mental health counseling. He never directly said that. And we just kind of kept going around in these circles of that first meeting. It was kind of like, I don't particularly agree with a lot of the decisions you're making. And none of them are things that, you know, can get you kicked off staff. But his wife was there. The meeting happened in his house with his wife. And then we got to a point where I said, you know, I feel like we're going in circles. At this point, it's about one o'clock in the morning. I feel like we're going in circles that we're not really going to get to a point where we see things the same. I think it might be best for me to leave now. Um, You know, I was being very respectful. Can you explain what your response to him was there? Like, what were you guys not seeing eye to eye on? Yeah. Now, I didn't have this language then. Now, I definitely know that I was going into a fawning response. Um, You know, people will talk about like fight, flight, freeze. Um, I was going into a fawning place of like, okay, I feel like I'm a little kid that's getting in trouble with her father. And what do I need to do to make this okay? But also, I don't know exactly what I did wrong. That's kind of what I was wondering. Like, what specifically was he saying? I personally love, insert sarcasm, when authoritarian men say, I don't like the decisions you're making, but can't actually tell you what the decisions you're making they don't like are. Because really, they just don't like that you're making decisions at all. Yeah. (laughs) I'm wondering if that's what was happening here. That's really what it feels like. Maybe there was something concrete there that I just did not sink in because of where I was just mentally in, in those moments, not really expecting, not expecting this. And then also feeling like we're at your house with your spouse. So I already have like two strikes against me. Like we're on your turf with a person who their role is to support you. Yeah. Um, And I'm just kind of here abandoned on my own. But at the point where I said, you know, I don't, I don't really think we're getting anywhere. I think it'd be best if I go home. He said that if I left at that point, that he would report me to the regional office for being insubordinate. And that was the point where I was like, I am trapped. Like, this feels like a control power play and I am trapped. And how could you have gotten out? Like, what was he looking for from you in that moment? Do you know? Yeah, I honestly do not know. I guess eventually we got to a point where I just 
kind of crumbled and and agreed like you're right I am withdrawing from the staff team too much I'll try to be more present okay because it really was this okay what do I need to say to you to be able to leave yep the survive like Mm -hmm. I need to survive this moment and get out of here so I'm gonna say whatever I need to say to get there yeah do you remember if you were attempting at any point to explain why you felt like you were withdrawing and was that just being met with just like dismissiveness basically when the conversation first started because at at the very beginning I was hoping or trying to take it as this is a genuine question you're noticing some changes you're checking in and so I was trying to you know explain like there's been a lot of changes in the dynamics of our staff team over the past six months year and I realized that I need to look for those social connections in other places you know and I realized that there's some things that personally I needed to work through and so that's why I'm have sought out counseling and you know really was trying to kind of address the concerns and then when we just kept going in circles you know and then at the point when I when I asked for it to be over and was was told that I would be considered insubordinate. That was really when it went into survival mode. What was his spouse doing during this three and a half hour meeting? She, uh, when it first started, we're like in the living room area and she was in the kitchen doing something, but like they're open space connected, like she can hear and be involved. And then every once in a while she'd start chiming in. And then by the end, she's like sitting on the couch with him facing across from me. I'm in a chair you know, and every once in a while she would chime in, but very much being like moral support there, you know, that was just the beginning. I didn't know that at the time. Like at the time, I thought that was going to be a one-off, very uncomfortable meeting, but it was just the beginning of my whole world unraveling, really. I don't understand the obsession with these meetings, like these long meetings that they want. Like I, I feels like, like the majority of our stories have one or two of these long, early, late night, mm-hmm. early morning meetings. I I couldn't do that. It's a tactic. It's purposeful. Mm-hmm. It's purposeful. I mean, I've experienced, I think most of us have probably experienced that. You just, at, at a certain point, if you're speaking with someone who's using narcissistic abuse tactics Mm -hmm. at a certain point your brain just shuts off you're like I have to be done how do I get out of here and I think men and women all experience it I just know because I'm a woman I talk to other women and like I think we experience it at a really high rate especially in Christian environments like just it's so exhausting and draining and you walk out just feeling like trash trash. Yeah, that is exactly. I had to sell my soul to get out of that meeting Mm -hmm. is how you feel. I did not defend myself. If only I would have just sat there for another hour and stood my ground. Your self-worth is just in the dirt. Yeah. Don't you leave also thinking, at least I've left like this before, thinking like, well, I must be wrong. Like there's got to be something that these people know that I don't know. Like like you start reflecting Mm -hmm. like you're at fault almost for the whole meeting in the first place. Like if I had only done X, Y, and Z, I would have never been in that meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And when it's tied up with your faith and your spirituality, like then you start questioning, does God view me this way? You know, like, am I even worthy of of being 
being in ministry. And then it can go to the point of, am I even worthy of being alive? And that was just the beginning. Like it, it got worse and worse. Well, walk us through that. How did it get? Cause now you, I, you went to a weekly meeting, right? Like you were now, so walk us through. Yeah. It didn't immediately go to a weekly. It was monthly, probably for maybe three months. Um, then the regional office got involved and, um, I met with um, one of the uh, female staff from the regional office at that time. And in the conversation, she asked me, she said, you know, leader has said that you hate his wife, that you have issues with his wife. And I was like, that's not true. Uh, I said, I do have issues with these meetings that keep happening and she is there and what I shared with y'all that it feels like, like I'm on your turf with your person. If you need another person there, could it be somebody that is just a third party, you know, not the support person for either one of us. I also, I have questioned since this time, would I have been treated this way if I'd had a husband? Eventually then it started moving to more frequent. It got to the point where we were having meetings every week. He did bring in another, one of the other males on our staff team. Honestly, I would say at that point, the healthiest male. I mean, he he was the one person on our staff team that could have a conversation with me. You know, like if we ran into each other in the student center and needed to talk about something, this particular person could have a conversation. Um, so he became the third person in our meetings, which really wasn't fair to him. You know, you're on the staff team and now you're put in the position of being the mediator between the leader and another staff member. So we're having these meetings every week and they would be scheduled right before our staff meeting. Let's say that our staff meeting is at one o'clock. This meeting might be scheduled for 11. So we're sitting in the meeting. Pretty much every meeting I was breaking down and crying, like the obvious cry, the when I walk out of this meeting, you know I've cried. The meetings were running overtime, so our staff team was there. So they would see me come out of this meeting um, crying. Um, and what was happening in the meetings is almost every time I would be confronted with a list of here are things that either you're not doing well or you're um, not doing at all. And a lot of times it'd be things that like I was never told that was part of my job. Just kind of like it felt like really nitpicking everything that I did. And I was asked not to talk about the meetings with our, the rest of our staff team. But they're seeing me come out of these meetings. You know, it's obvious that I've been crying and I'm going like straight in the bathroom. And so one of the other staff members asked the leader, like, what is happening here? Like, are you trying to get rid of Michelle? Like, what's happening? So then my next meeting, I got reprimanded. You know, you're not supposed to be talking about these meetings. Like, this is between us as we try to work things out. This is not appropriate. There's meetings with the regional office sprinkled in here as well. You know, there'd be weeks that I was having two and three meetings on top of trying to do ministry with students. Okay, so I have a question there because that's like a super obsessive and and like crazy for any job setting, like having two to three personal meetings a week, like on, on performance is crazy. So what were, what were some of the items on the list that they said, you're not like, what was he saying that you weren't doing well? So one thing I remember specifically was about 
we were doing some conference registration, how he wanted us to handle that. He had never told us that, but it's on my list of things that I'm not doing correctly. So that was one thing. Another thing that this was toward the end, we as a staff had kind of divided up the ministry teams of students. So maybe a team is in charge of outreach and a team is in charge of special music. And so I was in charge of the team that did the weekly meeting. So that's like the large group meeting service that happened every single week. And they had to do a lot of work to put that together. And so one of the things that I kind of did to encourage them was that at the beginning of the semester, I would ask them, you know, like, what are your favorite snacks? And, um, you know, like soda, that kind of thing. And I would bring those to our meetings. And so then the leader said, you're playing favorites with students because you're doing this. And it was like, I'm doing it for all of the students that are on the team that I'm working with, which any students could be a part of. Nitpicking, like you said. Yeah, yeah. So as a leader then, did he come alongside you and say, let me model like what we should be doing with this? And you're shaking your head no. No. I didn't even finish <laughs> asking the question. You started shaking your head. So he's not modeling this. Then, all right, when you get to like a regional level, level right, HR or what have you, what are they saying to you? I think the stories that they were getting were very different than what was happening. We, as a team, we had been told that um, his wife was going to be our co-leader. And then a few weeks later, we were told that she had declined the position because she wanted to focus on her children. The message from the regional team was that she had never been considered as our co-leader. So were we lied to? I don't know. We had a new staff person, like a person that had just graduated that was going to do staff um, for a year, like as an internship. The team leader's wife was supposed to be training her and had never met with her. The intern actually came to me and was like, hey, can we meet when you're on campus? Because I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. In one of my meetings with the regional office, I brought that up. And they were like, well, the team leader and his wife are doing the best that they can. They're, they're doing it as often as they can. I don't really know kind of what, what all was being told to the regional office. It just seems like a waste of everyone's time and energy. And, mm -hmm. and also like, I also think like if he was this, you know, if he was this discouraged or displeased with your performance, then just fire you. Just be like, Hey, see ya. Like, here's why. Cause it sounds like he had, he had enough, I'm using quotation marks, documentation where he could do that. So I don't understand, like, I don't understand why he continue, he can, has this need to continue these meetings with you. Like, it's like almost like an obsessive yeah. thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's wearing her down. It's purposeful. Yeah, but like, but, but what is he getting out of that? Does that make sense? Like, there's something he's got to be getting out of it. I don't want to have that many meetings. Who wants to have that many meetings? I feel like it was a power trip. It had to be. You're feeding that ego in him. It's crazy. Like, maybe I can't completely control you, but I can call these meetings mm -hmm. and make sure that you're having to meet with the regional office and occupy a lot of your time. Well, and aside from, so let's, let's parse this apart a little bit. So you have this going on behind the scenes. What's going on in your ministry? And like, how is that doing? And yeah. Like, is it flourishing? Is it growing? Are students like thriving? How's that working out? There's parts of it that are flourishing and parts that 
are not. I was leading a Bible study of some of our um, upper class women, and it was going really well. The leader told the regional office that none of our staff members were leading Bible studies, like it just didn't even exist. You know, that was going really well. Those were the students that were um, going on like mission trips and things like that. There were some other areas that were going okay. I was working really hard to not talk about the leader, to not demonstrate that things weren't good among students because I didn't feel like that was appropriate. And I was having a lot of repercussions of all of this stress, like physically. I um, was having a lot of joint issues. Um, like there was one point where I could barely walk because my I couldn't bend my knee. It had swollen up so bad. And like it, this wasn't because of an injury. It was just like the toll that all of this was taken on my body. I got really sick, like the sickest I had ever been up to that point. Body aches and congestion. and But I the doctors couldn't find any reason for it. Like I didn't have the flu and I didn't have like a respiratory virus or, you know, and this was before COVID. So now I know my body was breaking down in response to all of this stress because I really was trying to compartmentalize like, okay, this really horrible stuff is happening. And I still enjoy working with students and I still am seeing fruit out of working with students. And just so listeners know, that's not an uncommon response. Like we hear that from storytellers, not all the time, but frequently enough that I've heard it multiple times mm -hmm. where people have like extreme, a lot of times it's actually joint pain associated with this time of their life. And then for some of them, they get out of that context and then it magically disappears mm -hmm. and they're okay afterwards. And that I think is a testament to how psychologically horrendous going through something like this is like our our body starts to have physical symptoms because of the amount of stress and anguish our minds are under yeah our souls are under and so I remember out of those meetings one of the comments that he made that will probably always stick with me is that he said, Michelle, you lack a heart of contrition, and I sometimes doubt your relationship with Jesus. And like, that, I, I just, I still don't have words. I mean, that's more than 10 years ago, and I still don't have words. How do you have any idea what my heart is? Like, you're, you're not a safe person for me to reveal that to. Can you remember what he said that in response to? I honestly don't. It doesn't matter what it was, but I'm just yeah. curious. Like, it just doesn't, again, and I think we probably say this every story. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why? What? I don't care. I mean, okay, I've been a worship leader, right? And I cannot imagine, and I've had to deal with different personalities throughout my time during that. I cannot imagine no matter what saying that to someone, like not even if they were spitting in my face. I can't imagine saying that to someone. Just yeah, what yeah. in the world? Well, this was the same time that he was like on this super like we have to forgive each other kick. And so we had these like mini meetings in our staff team where we had to write down like 
here's all the things that I'm holding against you and like verbalize them and then say, I'm sorry, I forgive you. And, and that, that felt very performative to me. Well, it was also data collection for him. Mm. He's collecting all your weak points to use against you in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It was in the midst of that same time period. So honestly, like I look at all of that period of spiritual abuse, I kind of have blocked some of it out. You know, um, I'm definitely in a very different place now than I was 10 years ago. Um, This past February was 10 years since like kind of the culmination of everything. That happened because, like I was saying earlier, I realized I really enjoy still working with students. I have a lot of passion for this. I see fruit here. I am not enjoying this side of all of these meetings. And and so trying to figure out how can I still work with students and also pursue something that gives me the training to be able to um, continue supporting people in a different context. And so I became aware of a part-time mental health counseling grad program that was designed for folks that are working full-time, like the classes are on the weekend. And so I decided that I was going to make a request to step down from being full-time staff with this ministry to being part-time staff, which shouldn't have been an issue. Many people had done that to pursue various things, and I was going to pursue this graduate degree at the same time. When I made the request, I was informed that there was a new requirement that in order for someone to move from full-time staff to part-time staff, you had to have two people on your staff team complete a review and the regional office would choose the two people, which makes no sense. If I'm qualified for full-time staff, why do you need a review to determine if I'm qualified for part-time staff? And the regional office chose the person that I mentioned who was probably the healthiest person on our staff team and the staff leader. Why would you choose a person that you know has issues? But anyway, I still was going through the process. And then I got a phone call in February of 2003, got a phone call from the regional office that was going over the feedback they'd gotten. Of course, they can't tell me who said what, but in situations like this, you know who said what. And one of the comments was that, I was a detriment to students and I should no longer be able to serve on campus. But I could I could be allowed to move to like a office and and do some work. And that was the point where for me it was just like this is incredibly hypocritical. I cannot keep doing this. Like I that was the breaking point for me of I'm done. I didn't think about really anything at that point cuz it was just like my world shattered. After the fact, I started thinking, you didn't ask any students. You didn't talk to any students. You got this comment from a person that you already know has issues with me. And you left me on staff for the rest of the year to lead a spring break trip and finish out ministry. If I'm truly a detriment to students, why would you do that? The rest of that year, um, so that was from February till about the end of April, for a college semester was horrible. Um, there were weeks where I cried every day at some point. We had some really great um, seniors, senior students who stepped up on the spring break trip and help take on some leadership because I was not 
sharing any of this with students. I didn't feel like it was appropriate. Like he is still the leader of the ministry you're involved with. They just knew that I was making a transition. You know, I shared what was true, but felt appropriate to share. That And that was really hard because it, one way I've described it is that it felt like, it felt like my child was being taken away because I had started the women's ministry. It felt like I was getting a divorce because this had been where I like put all my relational energy. It felt like I was losing my job and my faith had been crushed all at the same time. Um, so like all of those huge life altering events happening all at the same time. What did, what did your, how did your students respond to your, you saying that you're leaving? What was their response? There's a lot of students that like knew me, but didn't really know me. I didn't have a close relationship with them. So for them, I think that that just, oh, I'm making a transition. Like that was enough. Okay, you're doing something else. That's what people do. There were some students who knew me very well and who asked that, that they were like, you know, I feel like there's more to this. What is it? And like I said, I didn't feel that it was appropriate to share that with them. The ones that were really close, I said, you know, there is more to this. Um, and at some point when you're not a student, if you still want to know, ask me. Because my thought was, students are pretty self-absorbed. Like, <laughs> they're moving on. In a year or two, they're not going to remember this happened. And for the most part, that was the case. What What about the leader? Like, what was your reaction or, I guess, response or interaction like with him? knowing that he knows what he said about mm -hmm. you, but he's probably not going to tell you that. So what was that like? Very awkward. There were a lot of staff meetings that I was a part of that I was like, why am I here? Like This whole staff meeting is focused on planning for next year. We all know I'm leaving. And even though everyone in this room might not know the whole circumstance, we all know it's not good. Like that this wasn't just fully my decision. Actually, one of the students that I was closest to, who was in my Bible study, also did some babysitting and stuff for the leader um, and his family. And so one day when she was there, um, like she'd been babysitting before she came to Bible study, and she was like, yeah, I was at their house today. And, um, you know, that leader's wife mentioned that she's really sad to see me go, and she she's not real sure why I'm making this transition right now, but they sure will miss me. I didn't say anything verbally, but my face was like, what? <laughs> um, you know, and like trying to control. So I'm not sure how he addressed it with other people, but I do at least know that that comment was made to at least one student. We are so excited for her in her next chapter. Mm hmm. You, you mentioned too, when you, I know you mentioned the physical things that were, were going on prior to this. After you left though, I mean, you had a bout of depression as well. So were you, was that starting now where you were starting to feel depression coming on or what did that look like for you physically and emotionally through this process? Really through the end of the semester, it was more sadness. It wasn't at the level of depression yet. And it was okay, how do I wrap this up as well as possible? Like, this is not how I wanted to end my time in ministry, but how do I wrap this up? And so my focus was really on that. We got to the end of the semester, did like, you know, all of the end of semester stuff, kind of going into summer. And about a week out from all the activity was when the depression really hit me. So for 
probably three weeks to a month, I didn't leave my house. Um, I was afraid to go to the other side of town because that's where his house was and I didn't want to run into anybody. At first, it was just, okay, I'm just not leaving my house. And then it got to where, like, I'm not even getting out of bed. I definitely was suicidal for a while there, but I was so depressed that the actions it would have taken to act on that felt like they were too much. So I didn't really eat for like two or three weeks. I hadn't eaten anything. I had a friend who was like, I'm coming to town and we're going to do something. You can choose what we do or I can choose what we do, but we're going to do something. Um, And that was the first time like I got out of bed, showered, put on clothes, like went out somewhere. And when I put on my clothes, I realized, oh, I must have lost some weight because these are big. So then that became, okay, well, this is something I can control. The whole rest of my world is out of control, but I can control my food. And I actually got into a active eating disorder throughout that summer and into the next year. Really sad thing is that because I am a larger person, I have a larger body, everybody celebrated it. You know, everybody, including medical providers, very excited that I was losing weight. No asking questions about how this is happening. Now, when I look back, I realize like, how incredibly unhealthy the patterns of the things I was doing were, but it was all about control. Like my whole life has blown up and is out of control. And so this is the one thing that I can control. Um, And so that was kind of the aftermath. I started going back to counseling because I had stopped in the midst of everything happening with the leader. I think part of me thought, okay, well, if I don't go to counseling anymore, he can't pick on that part. I started going back to counseling. That was the first time that somebody used the word trauma and it really fit for me. Um, As I was talking about my experience and, you know, what was happening and how I was feeling and, and just all the questions I was having, my therapist was like, you know, it really sounds like you're having a lot of trauma responses. Like, I know this may not be something that you would typically think about, could cause PTSD, but do you feel like does trauma fit as a word to describe what you've experienced? And for me, it was so relieving just to be like, oh, okay, trauma is a real thing. And yes, yes, that does fit. And this was before anybody was really talking about religious trauma, spiritual abuse. Like, I think there were a few pockets of people. Um, that were mentioned in those things, but not in culture at large. And so working with her was really helpful. I definitely have seen over the years kind of how my feelings about what happened, my relationship to that time, my ability to talk about that time has shifted. Damn, (laughs) that's a lot of information. It's devastating, honestly. I don't have anything to say other than that. Yeah, yeah, that that is a perfect word to describe how it felt. It's exciting to me at this point of the episode that we're going to get a whole part two to see how that's informed your career. And you talk about like now you have more words to describe what you went through and understand a little bit better what you walked and how 
you're able to now utilize that to help other people see what they're experiencing and heal from religious trauma and trauma in general. That's a little teaser. I don't want to get there too soon. I want to stick with just how we end any story for any storyteller. Because again, this is part one. This is story. Part two next week, we're going to get to hear a lot more about your education and your career. What would you say to other people that are walking in similar situations to what you described? Because it sounds so awful and so relatable. Like there are so many people in a situation identical or close to identical to what you were experiencing. Men and women with different dynamics, but you know, very similar spiritual language being used by people that are in positions of authority over them to make them small and to use power to control and manipulate and coerce them to to act a certain way or to exist as a certain person, what would you say to people that are in that similar space to where you were? Yeah, there's there are so many things that that come to mind for me. A big one is when something doesn't feel right, trust that. Like when it feels like, okay, the way I'm being treated is not acceptable or maybe feeling almost like you're being picked on, trust that something is off. If you're lucky enough to have a safe person or safe people in your life to be able to talk to about it, people that can listen and um, really see the reality of facts and help you through it, that are not trying to push you toward continuing in this scenario or push you away from it, but just help you make the decision that's best for you to, to reach out to them. I think that therapy can be so helpful. I know it was for me in my story. And I just think especially working with a trauma-informed therapist. And trauma may not be the word that fits for your experience. um, But being able to talk to someone that even can echo it back to you of like, this is what you just said. Because sometimes when we're living the experience, we don't realize what's really happening and how messy and and hurtful it can get it's mirroring right that's the term too if someone can mirror yeah you like or, mirroring it or reflecting yeah, it back yeah. like you know just being able to when you say something being able to emphasize like this is what you just said like are you aware yeah. of what you just said how you just described this what does this feel like when you hear me say this to you what do you hear <laughs> yeah yeah I think especially coming out, that's such good wisdom because I think especially coming out of the context that that we talk about on this podcast, we are taught to not trust ourselves or to view ourselves as so small and little that it's oftentimes easier when we hear someone else say it to hear the gravity of the situation because we're so used to making ourselves the bad guy mm-hmm. and not understanding like, thinking somehow we deserve what's happening to us because we deserve death. So why why wouldn't we be deserving of this behavior? But when we hear someone we trust say it back to us and you start feeling that little like shift of justice, like what? Yeah. No, no. So helpful and hugely important. I know that for my own life too. What would you want to say 
to leaders of ministries like the one that you're coming out of, to the leaders that you had at that time? Like, what would you like to say publicly? I think the biggest overarching thing is not to be afraid to admit if you've made a mistake. Because I think, I don't know that the regional office recognized, huh, this person was not the best fit for leadership here. I feel like they should have, but I feel like in a lot of Christian circles, there's like this unwritten rule of, well, we promoted you to this level, so we can't move you to a different level, so you're here, and we just have to try to band-aid it or cover it up. But to be able to say like, hey, you know what, maybe that wasn't the the correct move, and so we're going to, you know, move things around a little bit. I feel like that could help a lot, just kind of that humility to say, hmm, we made a wrong decision. We can switch this. We can change it. Is there anything else you want to say about your story before we move into part two next week? I don't think so. Uh, my my story very much plays a role into what we're going to be talking about in part two. Um, and so I'm not sure that the things we'll talk about in part two would have ever happened without this first part and this story. Well, thank you so much. I um, have just been so encouraged, even from our first conversation, talking to you and seeing your heart. And I am so sad for that ministry that they didn't see the gift that you were and the strengths that you brought and your specific heart for ministry and college-aged kids. There's a gigantic hole there, and I'm really sad that they lost that. I want to encourage you that your integrity and character shines in through your story and through the conversations that we've gotten to have, and I am so excited to learn more from you next week. Well, thank you so much. Um, I I love this podcast, honestly, um, and I just can't imagine what it would have been like had I been able to hear other people's stories when I was going through um, the things that I experienced, just to know, like, I'm not the only one who's having experiences like this. So I feel like that that is just so powerful. So I'm really um, excited to get to share. I often find myself reflecting on the conversations we had with each storyteller weeks or even months later. It's hard to understand how there can be so much hurt and trauma happening in our churches and faith institutions. The gravity of this pain can be overwhelming. My mind can wander to places where this outrage makes me question everything. And when I thumb through my Bible, I struggle to make peace with how we can so quickly disregard Jesus' message of inclusion, renewal, and love in an effort to increase our own power and influence. I can get lost in these thoughts. But that's when I remember people like Michelle. Michelle's voice could have been lost forever because of those horrific meetings she had to endure. But like the storytellers before her, Michelle had the courage to believe that that was not Jesus. And through that courage, she took one step forward, one day at a time. This rebellion to disregard what others say she must be 
and instead accept who she is, is reflective of the radical renewal that an unknown carpenter shared with others some 2,000 years ago at wells, dinner tables, in homes, on long walks, and I'm sure by countless fires at night. This type of love is personal and intentional. Yes, it's hard. It's not flashy. And sometimes it's lonely. But it gives to others the life, joy, and hope that they need and deserve. For Johnny Harris, I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Mm-hmm.